Hi, this is Peter Gallagher, and you're listening to Obscurity Knox. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Obscurity Knox. That's right, the irregularly produced podcast where I asked actors about projects in their back catalog that nobody else would ask them about. But because of this, we hope that they have some stories to tell they've never actually told anyone, and if we're really lucky, they're actually interesting. Fortunately, my guest this week is definitely someone who has plenty of interesting stories, and I know this firsthand because he was my first Random Roles interview way back in 2011. His name is Peter Gallagher, and you may know him and or his eyebrows from such projects as The Idolmaker, The O.C., Summer Lovers, you know Summer Lovers, that's right, and various other films and TV series. He was the sleeping guy in While You Were Sleeping, and he was actually sleeping. That's the kind of actor he is. I also remind you that we are now on Patreon. If you go to www.patreon.com backslash Obscurity Knox, you can be a patron of this podcast, which would really like you to be. And by we, I mean I, because it's just me. But I will be really, really appreciative. And plus, it's not like I'm asking for a whole lot anyway. But you'll see when you go to the website. And now, Peter Gallagher. As always, I appreciate you uh, being willing to do this, especially given the uh, honor you hold as being my first Random Roles interview ever. <laughs> well, I... I, I'm just listen. When anyone survives more than five minutes in this business, it's it's cause for celebration. So <laughs> uh, I'm I'm glad to to be seeing you for round two. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. This uh, the premise, as I always say, it's kind of ridiculous, but at the same time, it it has paid off for me in terms of finding really great stories that no one else has ever heard before, just by virtue of doing the research to find out about some of these projects. Cool. Actually, well, we will kick things off, I guess, uh, I'll try to go chronologically. Uh, one that we did talk about during the random rolls, but well worth uh, revisiting given the cast involved, uh, Skag. Carl Malden is Skag, a man trying to keep his family together. I'll find some way to help her. I don't know how, but I will. A troubled daughter. I've been so alone. A rebellious son. There are things going on in this house right now that are going to come down on your head. A wife who's threatened. I'm going to go out. I'm, I'm going to do something. Carol Malden is Skag, premiering Sunday on NBC. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a great cast. That was uh, Piper Laurie and Carl Malden, Craig Wasson and Catherine Holcomb. And uh, oh, she was so good. She'd just done a movie hardcore or something like that. Oh, George C. George Scott? Scott. Yeah. Yeah, with George Scott right before the girl who played my sister, I think. Uh, just blanked on her name. It's been a while. I'll find it. But yes, and um, oh, I'm trying to remember who directed that. Uh, was it Joe Sargent? I can't remember. Anyway, but Abby Mann wrote it, and uh, and that was really my first, one of my one of my first jobs in television. I had done a pilot, but that was a miniseries that was expected to go, and um, and I remembered. I had you know, studied with people from the actor's studio, as had Carl. Right. And so we had a lot to talk about, and he was giving me, talking and telling me stories about uh, about uh, Brando and movie acting and so on, of course. <laughs> it came time for his close-up and just totally buried us all. Um, uh, but the funny thing about that was, it was a first for me in a lot of ways. It was the first uh, miniseries that I'd done, the first time I'd worked with what I thought were certainly great great actors and great stars, Piper Laurie and Carl Malden. And I played his son, their son, who was a medical stu- student who was uh, a, 
advent of socialized medicine, I think. I think I was for it, and Carl was against it. And so I was the black sheep of the family, and he got sick, and so I was... I had a phone call conversation, a very dramatic phone call conversation, where I was telling him I'm not coming home, even though I've got to do my medical boards, and I was somehow continuing to be the black sheep of the family and disappointing him in some way. And so we're having this very powerful monologue, and it's just me on... Like, one of the first, like, real monologues I'd, I'd had plenty in the theater, but not on camera or anything like that. So I was, yeah. I was preparing to just act up a storm. <laughs> and uh, so I was going on being a shitty son to Carl, and, and, and it was very nice of the director. And, oh, my God, was it Joe Sargent? I can't remember who directed that. Yeah. Oh, um, do you have the... You don't have the... Actually, I do. I'm on the IMDb right now. It was, well, Frank Perry... Oh, right, Frank Perry. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he was a great, great uh, director. That's right, Frank was uh, was, was doing the, the pilot. Anyway, <laughs> and so anyway, we're, in, we're on, the, on the sound stage at MGM. I think it's one of the st stages that, you know, the, they had the Busby Berkeley movies in. And, uh, and so it was this historic, amazing place, and we had the set built inside the thing. And so I'm, the shot's all about me. It's a single on me. I'm at my desk in my medical school room, and Dad, Carl Malden, is on the phone on the other line of the end, other end of the phone call. And Frank had decided, hey, I'm going to put Carl on the phone, and he's into it. So we're actually going to connect you live rather than you pretending he's on the other side and talking to you. He's going to be talking to you just to <laughs> sort of make it more and more real. So it he just beyond the lights, I couldn't see him because the lights were so bright. Carl was on the other end of the phone call while I was disappointing him and so I'm going through this big speech and blah 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 and all of a sudden I hear rat-a-tat-tat rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat on the roof I think oh great they're working on a roof right in the middle of my first big close-up in television I'm not stopping so I'm keeping going you know rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat and I said Jesus I can't believe they can't get somebody to stop the work around here at which point I feel I feel, I feel the subway going underneath the uh, the soundstage, and so I'm still going because it's the longest damn monologue I've ever had in my life. And I'm I'm going and I'm acting up a storm and so on and so forth. I'm thinking I can't believe fucking subway runs right below this. Uh, holy shit! There are no subways in Los Angeles. What the fuck is that? And I realize, and then as I'm I'm still acting, and I start surreptitiously kind of pretending to look out the window of my room at my, as I'm sitting at my desk past the lights just to see what the hell is going on here because I got the rat-a-tat-tat-tat on, on the roof and the ground is moving. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is a fucking earthquake. Holy shit. And so I said, what do I do? The show must go on. So I keep going. And, and so the lights are still on. I still see the camera. And as I peer just past the lights, you know, pretending to look out the window while I'm talking to Dad and the camera. I see I am the only person left in the entire soundstage. <laughs> Carl is left, the operator, the camera operator, and the AC, first AC, the grips, the gaffers. Everybody's gone, and I'm still acting. I think, holy shit, it really is an earthquake. i got to get into a door frame. So I jump up from my, you know, fake desk, and I'm standing there. I'm, I'm wedging myself so hard into the door frame, I feel like, the frame itself is bowing out. And I think, shit, this is just like made of balsa wood. This is never going to hold up the roof. I've got to get out of here. 
And so <laughs> I find my way out, which wasn't easy. And they were all just leaning up against cars and hanging out, having a smoke. That was back in 1978 or 79. Everybody still smoked. <laughs> and they're all looking at me, Carl's out there. They're all kind of got a smile on their face. So, first earthquake? Yeah, motherfuckers! Thanks, respect for saying something. <laughs> so that was my that was my introduction to working on a soundstage and, uh, and and going through an earthquake. So I'll never forget it for that. Not to, and also Abby Mann wrote it, who was a great writer and wrote Judgment at Nuremberg and Frank Perry. Oh yeah. I did remember when I I I, I had some questions about my character and I I asked Abby about them and he said it happened to me. Oh, okay. So I, I guess I guess this part's hands hands off. Okay. And I was thinking, okay, I got to remember that when somebody says it happened to me, it means you're not going to have much much creative freedom. <laughs> but so that's what it was. I my earthquake <laughs> abandoned it in my first earthquake. Well, I know for someone else in the cast, I don't. If you mention them, I I completely. Blew past me. The Powers Booth was in the, on the series. Oh my God! And Powers Booth. That's right. I forgot about this whole big stuff we had on the uh, uh, back at the hospital. And we're, we're oh, that's right. Yeah, Powers was great. Is Powers still alive? Yeah, he passed away a couple no. of years ago. That's right. Oh jeez, he was so young then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was great. He was really nice to me. Actually, he was you know as a, as a sort of a newbie. Yeah, I, I've always been amazed by the fact that the show had that cast and still only lasted a handful of episodes. I know. I was surprised. I don't think I minded so much. <laughs> I, it was still it was still the era of of you know people were doing preferred to do at least in New York preferred to do movies and theater and stuff and didn't really get the whole TV thing quite powerfully. Because the, the theater kept, I mean, the TV shows, the long-form shows like that, uh, like miniseries and TV movies back then, it kept the theater community alive. You know, I would do, uh, I remember I was doing, you know, I'd do a play or a reading with Jason Roebuck. I remember we did Long Day's Journey uh, with Colleen Dewhurst uh, for uh, O'Neill's 100th anniversary of his birth or oh, wow. death or something like that. And we did some other things, too. I knew him. And, and then, you know, would end up, being an inconvenient woman, <laughs> yeah, uh, with uh, you know Elaine Stritch and wow. Jill, and, uh, and 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 he said to me, he said to me, and you know, and and so it kept us alive. In fact, I remember uh, uh, Jason said, "Hey, kid, want to go see? Uh, want to go to Dow House and see where O'Neill wrote the play?" Wow. Said, yeah. So we drove up, the two of us drove up to Dow House and where Eugene O'Neill wrote Long Day's Journey and Tonight. I saw pictures of it actually of the two of us up there. Oh, wow. I just found and uh, you know, we took a road trip, went up there and of course it was like going with the, the Pope up to uh, O'Neill's house with Jason Robards. <laughs> and then a few years later I'd be doing it. Oh no, I guess I had already done our production with Jack, Jack Lemon and Stacy of uh, Long Day's Journey. Maybe that's, that's what it was, that's okay. why. I had already done that one too, so we we went up. Um, but those kind of things were huge. Those TV gigs. Just the thought of going on a road trip with Jason Robards is kind of mind-boggling. Yes, yes, <laughs> I know because he, he had a few less successful road trips prior to that. But uh, <laughs> but fortunately, we 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 went and came back with without incident, but filled with 
really great memories. I love that guy. He was, hey, kid. <laughs> yeah, he was cool. Well, on the matter of theater, uh, the next one actually on the list was uh, The Real Thing. Um, well, The Real Thing was, you know, it was sort of like the, it was sort of like the theater version of, I mean, it was not left anything like the theater version of Skaggers. The Real Thing was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And it was, um, and it almost didn't happen for me. Uh, but it was just huge because it was, uh, I had done a bunch of Broadway shows up until that point and starred in some. And I auditioned for The Real Thing, which was directed by Mike Nichols. And it was the American premiere of The Real Thing, which is also the play that my wife and I had seen on our honeymoon. Oh, wow. Just a couple of years, uh, three years earlier. No, uh, a year earlier. That was a year earlier. <laughs> and we saw Noises Off and The Real Thing. And ironically, I ended up doing them both. Um, but so we saw the re had seen the real thing. It was not had not been directed by Mike Nichols, but it was English production. And so I so I auditioned for the American uh, the Broadway premiere of Stoppard's play, and I didn't get the part. I, Mike didn't think I was sexy enough or something like that. <laughs> I don't. But anyway, the kid they hired, I guess, was struggling a little bit, and they asked me to come up to Boston to see the play and consider replacing him for the new for the New York previews and the and the Broadway opening. And I was with my wife. Thank God, um, because we went there, and she's from Boston. We met in Boston. We had met in Boston in the first week of freshman year in 1973, and we got married. Oh, we got married 10 years later. And uh, so we had been married for only a year, but we'd been together. And she was from Boston, and her mother just died, by the way, last week, who was a big dance teacher in Boston, Paul wow. Harwood. Anyway, so we went to see the show together. It was great. It was starring with Jeremy Irons, Glenn Close, Christine Baranski, Cynthia Nixon, when she was still in high school. Oh, wow. Uh, my bull pal, Beto Reginis, Kenneth Welsh. And it was wonderful. And uh, so Paul and I went out after seeing the play. And uh, I was supposed to meet with Mike the next day, Mike Nichols. Yeah. And uh, I said, I don't know about this play, man. <laughs> I, it's just like... If this part's so slow, I mean, well, I can't do anything. If I were to do this play, I'd do it so differently. I'd play the guy from this part of London. I'd be wearing these kind of clothes. My attitude would be about this. My I'd be doing. I just, I, I'm not. I can't do this. And it's like nothing. There's nothing. I mean, it's, it's like two seconds on stage and, and so. Well, why don't you tell Mike all that? What? I can't talk to Mike Nichols like that. What? Then of course I knew she was right, um, and I was just being terrified of <laughs> working with Mike Nichols and all these people, probably wondering whether I was going to measure up. But I was my my ego was probably talking about the size of the role, and my mostly my terror had the had the had the stage at that point. I thought, oh shit, she's right. I gotta just say this to Mike. <laughs> so I went to the next next day, and I was, hi, how are you? Peter, thank you for coming up. And I said, well, thank you for, for having me, Mr. Nichols. Um, well, what did you think? Well, um, I really loved the production, Mr. Nichols. I thought it was really great. So, well, you know, if, if I were to do that part, you know, I, I think I see it a little differently. I said, really? Tell me. So I told him all these things I was thinking about. I said, great, let's try it. <laughs> and that's when I realized what it was like to work with the best of the best. <laughs> there was no proprietorship in terms of, there was no ownership of all the good ideas. It was all in the service of trying to crack the story or crack 
discover what's underneath, to bring it to life. It didn't matter whose idea it was. It didn't matter that this was a guy that was confident enough in himself and in his abilities that he wasn't going to go for the small-time stuff of, you have to say these words exactly as written, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And so all of a sudden, I was invited to participate as a create, fellow creative artist in this one with this wonderful play. So we got to New York. I had about an hour and a half of rehearsal before the first preview. I learned my lines. There were several scenes, but I suspected that there was a lot of gold in those scenes that hadn't been quite mined, and that they might be, you know, pretty. It might be a really great role if my suspicions were accurate and that if I played it right, you could really uncover something that wasn't obvious there. And so all these thoughts were on my mind as I was sitting on the turntable before my entrance in the first preview of the real thing. Also just the fact that, oh my God, I've only had an hour and a half of rehearsal and this is Mike Nichols and this is the Tom Stoppard American premiere. It's the first preview and holy shit, I can't believe how nervous and how things could go so wrong. And they could go right, but they could really go so wrong. So I'm sitting there on the platform, and this, all of a sudden I hear explosions. I think, holy fuck. And I hear these explosions, and I'm thinking, oh my God. And I forget what it was, but in 1984, there was some kind of terrorist, some kind of, there was some kind of activity. I forget what it was in the city. And I wasn't surprised to hear these explosions oh, wow. of what I assumed to be some kind of terrorist attack. Yeah. The thing I didn't hear... And it stopped my breath, and everything went out of my head. The thing I didn't hear were the screams of the people or the people leaving the exit. Something, holy fuck, what's wrong with me? Just sitting there, all of a sudden, the turntable moved and started rotate, bringing me downstage for my entrance in the show. <laughs> and I'm thinking, holy God, help us, what the hell is going on? <laughs> should I run right now? or should I? And it pulls up, the lights come up, and the house is packed. <laughs> and they're all waiting for me to do something. I can't believe they're not running for the exits. Now the explosions have stopped, and all of a sudden I think, oh my God, I've got to do the scene now. What scene? Oh shit. <laughs> and I'm standing there with my traveling bag on the train, looking out in the audience, and thank God I remembered my first lines, and then remembered the scene and got off, and, and, it, and, it, and it worked, and it killed. The scene killed. I was, you know, I was had reason to believe that I wasn't crazy, and those changes, you know, paid off, yeah. and it just killed. So I get, I totally forget about the terrorist incident before the before the uh, scene, and then uh, I uh, I'm back on the turntable, about to make my entrance in my second performance on Broadway and the previews of the real thing, and there goes the explosions again. <laughs> I think, oh, okay, I'm totally losing my mind. Maybe this is going on inside my head or my <laughs> psyche, and it's about something that happened in the past, and I'm just going to have to deal with it. I, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. It was just insane. So I got out, did the scene again, and it killed again. And then I kept forgetting about it because it was, you know, I'm an actor, so the applause was great, the laughs were huge. So it wiped every bad thing out of my mind. Sure. <laughs> After that, I got back and happened. So it turns out that in the theater next door, which is where I actually had done, where I had done the original Broadway company of Greece. Oh, yeah. Parenthetically. <laughs> and the thing, I think it was, he was at the Royale, and I was at the Plymouth. 
in the theater next door, Jason Robards <laughs> is down in the basement, and you can't take it with you playing the grandfather who's making all the explosions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Robards is blowing up the theater next door, and I'm thinking that there's a terrorist attack. And meanwhile, nobody talks about it, so that was pretty funny. And then it turned out to be just the biggest hit I had ever been in, the happiest hit I had ever been on Broadway, and the biggest hit uh, I'd ever been in since uh, until I did uh, Guys and Dolls. Oh yeah, but it was thrilling because we had it was it was doing a great American play, and it was, but what was important for me was I I discovered what it's like, as I said, to work with the really the A-teams, the best of the best, and I found discovered that rather than it being daunting and you know intimidating and, and impossible to keep up it's actually the easiest thing you can do because everybody is standing shoulder to shoulder trying to tell the story not you know jockey for position and uh or whatever so it was really just one of those great experiences until i stayed too long i did it for a year and a half and i stayed too long and then i started to like question my sanity <laughs> Uh, let's see. Well, next, uh, which would have been right around the same general time frame, uh, a classic, if one that a lot of younger people wouldn't necessarily know, uh, Terrible Joe Moran. Tuesday, it's James Cagney in his television debut on a CBS special movie presentation. So now I'm a saint, am I? Terrible Joe Moran, the touching story of an ex-prize fighter and his wayward granddaughter both learning to love again. James Cagney stars Tuesday. Well, Terrible Joe Moran was again one of those peak, 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 peak experiences um, because it was starring James Cagney and Art Carney, Ellen Barkin. And um, I mean, it's funny nowadays that the world turns so fast that you know, it seemed like five minutes after Jack Lemmon was gone, it was Jack Lemmon. Yeah. And now it's like, you mentioned James Cagney, and they said, oh, I know, that was a series, wasn't it? Back in like the 60s or 50s or something. Oh, you're thinking of Cagney and Lacey, and that was like more like the 80s or 70s. <laughs> yeah. But, so I was cast in this thing, and uh, and it was thrilling, because I grew up, you know, I'm Irish-American. My mother was first generation. I was on the second generation on my mother's side of America, and my, my dad's. You know, Jimmy Cagney in an Irish-American household was like, he, he was right up there with the Pope and JFK. <laughs> and it was really like there was the, the Holy Trinity. And uh, my mother was in a college, at Hunter College, when she was studying to be a bacteriologist with Jean Cagney, Jimmy's sister. So we had our first day of rehearsal, a read-through, at the Carlisle Hotel where Jimmy was living. He had a big apartment there. And so... <laughs> I was a couple of seconds late to the rehearsal because they weren't going to let me up because they didn't believe I was, I don't know what they did. I just didn't think they, they thought I was a delivery boy trying to scam a glimpse of Cagney. I don't know what it was, but they kept held, holding me and asking to reconfirm that I'm allowed up there. Anyway, <laughs> so they, got, they finally let me up there. The door opens and Cagney's sitting at a table by the window across from Carney and, and uh, he's squeezing a... Uh, exercise ball because he had had a little stroke a few months before and he was recovering from and I walk and I the door opens and I'm there and Cagney looks to his left and sees me and he says black Irish just like my father <laughs> and uh so I go in and we introduce now my my mom's brother on my uncle 
Uncle Larry, when he they were living in Mount Vernon, he used to work in a uh, as a, as a part time job during high school as a janitor's assistant at the bank, and he used to remember Art Carney's dad bringing the little Art in when he was a kid to tap dance. <laughs> so between Gene Cagney and my uncle's knowing Art as a little kid tap dancer in Mount Vernon and being Irish American, I was in like Flynn. <laughs> you know. So after the after the rehearsal, he says, Gallagher, I want you to meet my wife, Billy. And he's in an elevator. I mean, he's in a, whatchamacallit, a wheelchair. Okay. I said, well, I'd love to, Mr. Cagney. He says, but first, we got to find her. <laughs> I said, ah, okay. And he says, Gallagher, let's go down the hall, down the hall. So I get behind the wheelchair. I'm wheeling him down the hall. Go in the bedroom. Go in the bedroom. Billy, Billy, we're going to find you. Billy. <laughs> and so, Gallagher, go in the bedroom. I go into the bedroom, and it's really their bedroom. I mean, they have all this, you know, Jimmy was like 83, 84, and yeah. Billy was like the same age. They'd met in 1922 oh, wow. in, a in a Broadway review called Pitter Patter. <laughs> and they'd been, you know, married for 64 years or something like that. Yes. And I said, no, she's not in here, Jim. All right, Gallagher, down the hall, down the hall. And I'm pushing Jimmy down the hall. She's Gallagher, go in the dining room and check behind the curtains. <laughs> and I look at him, I go, what? Behind the curtains. Go. And so I go in, there's nobody in the dining room. I'm looking around, I look at the curtains, and it doesn't look like I pull back the curtains, and there's his wife, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> I found you, Billy. Yes, you did, Jim. He said, I want you to meet my friend, Peter Gallagher. Pleased to meet you, Peter. And I said, pleased to meet you, Billy. You know, and I had just gotten married to my wife, and, uh, and they had been married for 64 years, and they were still chasing each other around the apartment. <laughs> so it awesome. was, it was, it was an inspiration. <laughs> I mean, I think she was sort of. I think she was just tired of all the show business stuff, and she was, she might have been taking a nip or something like that, and <laughs> hiding it. But it was pretty, pretty cool. And then I'd just hang out whenever we were shooting. Even when I wasn't shooting, I'd go in and hang out with Cagney and. Uh, and we'd box. I can't box to save my life, but he, he could back in the day. He'd go, kidneys, kidneys. <laughs> but I remember once Ellen and I were playing boyfriend and girlfriend. I was a wannabe monster who made a couple of mistakes with the wise guys. And so they were coming after me hard. And so Ellen's grandpa was Cagney, and she appealed to him to help me because he had connections all over the city because he was a legendary, terrible Joe Moran boxer. And Carney was his assistant, his aide-de-camp. And there was a scene where Ellen and I are out on the front porch of the Browns of the townhouse in, in Manhattan while Cagney and Carney were inside, and Carney is, like, spying on us, seeing what's, what's happening, you know, with us out there. And, and so <clears throat> Ellen and I would try everything we could do to crack him up. <laughs> when when Carney was like looking at us, of course he we never cracked him up, but he cracked us up because the line was <laughs> I, I can remember this. C Cagney's wheeled there in the center of the thing, and Carney's in front of him drying the dishes, and he says, and Cagney says because he's spying on Carney's Cagney says to Carney, "Beat it, Troy," and the Carney says, "Well, I still got the dishes to do. I said beat it." All right. And that's the scene that he's supposed to do, and we're trying to crack him up. <laughs> beat it, Troy. Well, he's still got the dishes to do. I said beat it. All right, but they'll have spots on them. <laughs> and, uh, and the next one, 
Um, all right, but they'll still be wet. And then the next one's all right, but they'll look like shit. And, <laughs> and of course, we screw up the shot because at that point they're over him onto us and we break up. <laughs> but he was an amazing. And Carney, Carney was just a, a sweetheart. And Cagney was just, you know, that's one of the, the coolest. Oh, here's another thing. Okay. So uh, uh, three years later, I'm doing Long Day's Journey Tonight with Jack Lemmon. Okay, yeah. And Cagney's in the hospital. And I have, you know, I didn't bug him after we worked. Jack went over to see him in the hospital during lunch one day, and he came back and he said, Cagney told me to tell you, you tell Gallagher I said hello. I said, Jack, are you serious? Oh, come on, are you making that up? Why would I make that up, you asshole? He said, yeah, he said, yeah, that's what he told me to tell you, and I did it. And so, anyway, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> well, I'll just say that it, not a lot of people will do an impression of Jack Lemmon doing an impression of Jimmy Cagney. Well, that's exactly right. That's what I loved about it. <laughs> <laughs> he was still Jack, but with a little Jimmy. <laughs> Let's see, so next one, another one we talked about during the random roles, but it was one of my favorite uh, anecdotes, so I figured the people get to hear you tell it. Uh, working on Dream Child. We are gathered here to celebrate the genius of Lewis Carroll on this the centenary of his birth. A celebration honored by the presence, the grace of Alice herself. She was Alice. I mean, the real Alice, the one Lewis Carroll first told the story to 70 years ago. Well, she's arriving in New York tomorrow morning on the Berengaria. Columbia are going to give her an honorary degree. Get it. Any old dame who fell down a rabbit hole and sat down to tea with a mad hatter is going to cheer me up, let alone our readers. But I was a little girl. Dream Child. The true story of the real Alice and Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll. I hope you will always cherish it, Alice. The most wonderful thing that has ever happened. I shall read it again and again and again, and then I shall start at the last page and finish at the first. A moving story. From Jazz Age, New York, to Victorian Oxford. Have you thought about whom you might like to marry? But why on earth should he say that to you? Because he loves me, of course. It's an emotion which has always frightened me. But I can always recognize it when I see it. I wouldn't change one hair of your head. Dream Child is Dennis Potter's brilliant picture of childhood innocence and the pressures of a new world. Was it a dream, or was it reality? What a day of the month is it? What day of the month is it? Carl Brown is the 80-year-old Alice. Flowers remind me of death, you know. Ian Holm as the inspired storyteller. It was time for Alice to have some teeth. Jane Asher as Alice's mother. Say you're sorry at once. What really happened in that long-lost Victorian summer? Was it the wonderland we can never forget? Or did the looking glass reflect a different picture? But I see it now, at long, long last. Thank you, Mr. Dodson. Thorny M.I. presents Dream Child, 
the revealing story of Lewis Carroll and the girl who was Alice. Child? Yeah, well, I remember in particular um, but back, uh, about Coral, Coral Brown. Yeah, exactly, Coral Brown. Oh, well, Dream Child. Well, actually, oh, well, you mean about Alan Bennett? Yes. English <laughs> Englishman Abroad? Yeah. That one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was very cool. Um, yeah, I, I had the, the great fortune, right after the, re, the, during the real thing, actually, I left, after we'd been, I'd been doing it for a year, I left for a little while to do um, Dream Child in England. Well, this is very interesting, which was a wonderful movie written by a great English writer, Dennis Potter. And he was a cranky but brilliant writer because he had this crippling psoriasis in his hands that would eventually kill him. He did Singing Detective. In fact, yes, yeah. The Singing Detective right. and Cream of My Coffee and Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, okay. And, he, and this crippling psoriasis. And then parenthetically, which is interesting, years later when it... He was a month from his ultimate demise. I think probably was 20 years after that or something like that. He was being interviewed on the Melvin Bragg show in London. And he was sipping a morphine cocktail <laughs> to quell the pain. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, you know, the question one asks oneself when one finds oneself in this position is, who do you want to kill? <laughs> and I thought, Rupert Murdoch because he's single-handedly responsible for the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> but then I thought, if I kill Rupert, I won't be able to finish my play. So I've decided to finish my play. <laughs> um, so it was interesting in terms of what he saw Murdoch had done to journalism in England, which is, of course, what's happened to us in America. Yeah. He's destroyed, destroyed our democracy as well. Anyway, so I got this this job to tell this story about the inspiration for Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Alice Little Hargreaves, who is now an old lady, and they want and she's invited to Columbia University. Lewis Carroll or Dodgson is long dead, and Columbia University wants to invite her to Columbia University to celebrate the hundredth anniversary of his birth or death. I can't remember which. Oh, his birth. Yeah, his birth, obviously. Um, it couldn't be 100 years otherwise. <laughs> Alice Little Hargreaves had to be 150 years old. Um, so that was played by the wonderful, wonderful, huge, larger-than-life, brilliant Coral Brown, married to Vincent Price. Yes. She was legendary. She was, you know, she, I remember once... She, I've watched her just eviscerate a PA for doing some kind of minor infraction while we were going. And then after they left shaken, she turned and she said, always good to keep them on their toes, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then these other great, you know, the saucy kinds of stories that she told me about and I'd heard from others. Just She was just very risque and very, very funny and just full of life. We had dinner all the time and, you know, there's great stories of she and her husband at the time at a first night of Peter Brooks. I forget which Peter Brooks Shakespeare played, but they wheeled on a huge phallus <laughs> on the stage as part of the prop and it was a first night in London back in the, part of the 50s or something, so it was a very sedate, except for Coral, who could be heard in Ohio saying, Nobody we know, dear! <laughs> <laughs> or, or lifting up her, when she was married to Jack Shepard, I think, lifting up her skirt at a party, said, Look, everyone, it's Shepard's Bush! <laughs> um, 
you know, so she was really a character full of, full of, full of life. But the coolest thing was, it's, it's for me, it's, it's when, it's really one of the greatest thrills is when the work you're doing in storytelling has a place in the world that you live in. And it's happened to me a, a few times. And one of the exciting kind of moments was I had played, done the American premiere of, of a play called Another Country, along, which was, which actually was sort of started my career in a way, that play, because it was, it was the first really great, great, great acting reviews I got from, and it was from Frank Rich. Uh-huh. Um, and it was also the play that blasted off Daniel Day-Lewis and Colin Firth in London. And it looked like it was going to do that for, for, you know, it was going to do that kind of thing for me because we had a producer that loved our production at Long, De- at Long Wharf Theater and wanted to transfer it to Broadway. And unfortunately, at the 11th hour, when she refused to take any other partners on, she bailed and pulled the plug on the entire production and never transferred. So then I had some time off and my wife and I got married. So the play, um, what's the play called? Another Country. Yes. So the play, Another Country, the one I did at Long Wharf Theater, was a story of uh, the, public, public, the public school lives of what, who, who became some of the greatest traders in the history of, of the UK. Philby, Kim Philby and Guy Burgess oh, yeah, okay. became spies for Russia against England and ultimately had to defect and live in uh, Russia and died in Russia. And I played Guy Burgess as a young boy in love with another young boy in public school, which is our version of prep school in England. And it was a wonderful play by Julian Mitchell and it was really great. And I'd done a lot of research about it all and read about this. and. And I remember one particularly powerful scene in the in the book, in the histories I'd, I'd read about Guy Burgess, was that when he was an older man living in Moscow and penniless, essentially, because living in the socialist system, regular things were hard to come by and there was not much affluence at all. And he was, you know, had no money and no comforts. And the old Vic, might have been the young Vic, came into town with a production of Hamlet. And I read this and, and the woman playing Ophelia returned to her dressing room in the intermission and uh, found this older man throwing up in her sink. <laughs> and uh, and it was Guy Burgess. And after he sort of, I think he was throwing up in her sink. He was also a big drinker. Okay. And he and it was Guy Burgess, the famous, famous, famous spy who had been dishonored in, in, in England. And he had requested of this actress that if she could only go by his haberdasher in England and order a new pair of shoes and a new hat and could send them to him in Moscow, he'd be eternally grateful. <laughs> Because he couldn't get he couldn't get shoes or hats, and it put her in a real you know, the the Ophelia in a real conflict because it was to to respond to the humanitarian needs of this to have humanitarian response to this man in need, yeah, or as a patriot to this traitor. So it was complicated. Well, to make a long story short, when I started working with Coral, she started telling a story about her time in the Young Vic, and I realized I just played that role. And I started working with Coral, and I realized like she was the young Ophelia who discovered Guy Burgess throwing (laughs) up in the sink of her dressing room. And she told this amazing story to Alan Bennett, who was a wonderful, wonderful writer, also a member of Beyond the Fringe with Dudley Moore and Jonathan Miller. And Jonathan directed our production of Long Day's Journey, parenthetically. And, And Dudley Moore has died of the disease 
my character has currently in the show I'm doing. Oh. But anyway, <laughs> wait, bring me back now. I okay. just went back to... Uh, Corwin just told you the story and you realized that she was the right. Ophelia. And she was, she, was, she was that Ophelia in that production. And, and, and so Coral was at lunch with Tony Richardson, whom she, she loved to work with, the director, and Alan Bennett, and told this story that I just told you. And a year later, a script was delivered to her doorstep from Alan Bennett. <laughs> and he said, you know, these, the note said, essentially, Dear Coral, this story was so astounding that I had to write it down. This is for you to do with what you will. Love, Alan. Wow. And it was this wonderful, wonderful script of an Englishman abroad, which Coral ultimately did with, I think it was Albert Finney. Was it Albert Finney? Or I, think so. was it? I think so, anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So... That's great. Let's see. So next up is uh, My Little Girl. From Hemdale, producers of the Academy Award winner Platoon and Merchant Ivory, producers of the Academy Award winner Room with a View, comes My Little Girl. She smiles and hugs me when I come home. She kisses me when I leave. No matter how angry I become, her love is there for me to receive. She lives in a world of privilege. A world of country houses, soft, quiet nights, a world of protection. They live in a world of danger. You want to keep me locked up in this anger. Pit until I am 39. Shut your filthy mouth! You think the world needs one more hooker on the corner with a nine lipsticks? A world of violence and quick, easy solutions. Then she came into their world. Don't bite off more than you can shoot. At first, it's just a summer job. Eat a good lunch. You eat a good lunch. It becomes the summer that changes her life. Looking for somebody? That girl saw more before she was 12 years old than you probably see in your lifetime. Watch out, Toilet Head. You're in the middle of our game. What do you like? Music, sports, the news. Another thing. Don't come in here looking like no movie star. Get rid of them jewels. I'd like you to run away at the first sign of trouble. I'm trying. You're not trying hard enough. All she wanted to do was help. Miss? Instead, she has to learn to survive. I'm not so sure your involvement with this center is necessarily a positive thing anymore. The police won't get you if you're with me. That dude's a pimp. You've got the most screwed up values that is enough. Ever. And if I find out she's been strip searched... No matter what you may think of me, the bottom line here is that I put the roof over your head and the clothes on your back. And as long as I do that, what I say goes. Understand? And before the summer's over, she finds out she's not a little girl anymore. Although sometimes she's naughty and there are tears, she comes back to me to comfort her fear. She wears bows and patches and sneakers and pearls. She makes me proud to say she's my little girl. Who takes care of you? I do. James Earl Jones, Geraldine Page, and Mary Stuart Masterson. My Little Girl, from Hemdale. My Little Girl, My Little Girl was a, it was important to me in a way that I had, I had struggled a bit after the real thing, because I'd done it so long and life. The rest of the cast had all these opportunities and they didn't seem to be materializing for me, and I started sort of just questioning everything about myself, and, and finally left the show after a year and a half, and kind of just re-examined my approach to things, and started studying other kinds of acting things, and, and this was one of the sort of tender first jobs back 
in, and when I played a pimp in a movie, in a movie with James Earl Jones and uh, Mary Stuart Masterson, and uh, and I just remember that as as my gentle dipping my toe back in before I did Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which sort of confirmed to me that I was back on the planet and back in my finding my stride again. But you know, I don't have that many real stories I can, that I can really remember. I mean, I you know, researching it was interesting. I, I hung out with some friends who had friends who were in that business, the pimp business, and you know, so that was always interesting. Yeah, my favorite was Teddy City. She was a big earner. I was like, uh, but, but it was, you know, kind of seamy. And, but then I don't have a lot of that, to be honest with you. Just meeting James Earl Jones was enough for me. And you know what? And he's been cool ever since. I mean, well, I and also just... Erica Alexander, Erica Alexander, who I believe was on the Cosby show um, oh. after that. She was a young girl then. And I just remember thinking she was so talented and telling her that and wishing her the best and encouraging her to go for it. And I was so thrilled. I don't think I'm crazy about that. I was so thrilled to see how well she she did after that. So I was looking to see. She was on the Cosby Show, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't crazy. Good. Yeah. She was lovely. Uh, she's definitely been keeping busy, to say the least. I mean, I know she was in uh, she was in Get Out. Oh my God, she must be all grown up now. I remember when she was practically <laughs> just a little girl. Yeah, she played. Oh, I'm uh, so happy for her. Yeah, played a detective so in Get Out. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't put that together. I look forward to bumping into her one of these days. And I, I don't know that uh, you would remember her at all, given I don't know how much she was actually in the film but apparently that was also uh, Jennifer Lopez's first role are you serious yeah Jennifer Lopez was in that movie yeah <laughs> her film debut what did she play what what did she do in it her one? name was Myra uh, as far as what her actual character was I that I've not determined but uh oh my god well that's so crazy <laughs> that's so funny okay I'm gonna check that out yeah then I guess that was also Geraldine Page's last film yeah yeah so funny I'm just looking at a picture of Geraldine on the cover of uh, A Touch of the Poet here with Robards and Catherine Walker. Oh, wow. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's one of those films I was surprised I wasn't aware of just by virtue of the fact that it had Mary Stuart Masterson as the, uh, the lead. I figured I would have known it, yeah. but no. Wow, well, that's uh, crazy. So let's see. So next up was actually a, a guest-starring gig, but it was an interesting show, uh, Private Eye. You got some stones, Cleary. Why settle for 40 bucks a day when you can pick up an easy 10 grand before breakfast? I guess that's a small fortune for a, a flat-foot grunt like yourself. Yeah, I guess. But then this flat-foot grunt found the master, Baron. And I found you. All you did was disrupt my business. You caused ripples. You see, I'm just a spoke in a wheel. The size and complexity of which you can't imagine. Ten grand, I make that in a week. Tax-free. I got guys above me who sign my checks I've never met. Now let's see the master. Let's see the money. You know, I can understand you're killing Archie Hammond. I mean, besides being a career obstacle, you would have uncovered that counterfeit record scam here sooner or later. But why Billy Ray? You're nuts. Do you think I'd croak the hottest ticket I got? I just signed a three-album deal with the kid the day before he died. Those guys, they thought this rock music idea was crazy, these, these wild-haired kids. I'm gonna make it a money machine. 
I needed was a formula. Well, yeah. What's so funny is I just ran into Josh Brolin, who is the young one of the young leads of that. Yeah. And uh, just like last year or something. And it was just delightful to see him, to have seen him as such a young kid then, and to see that he's, there's still the young kid there, still in him, the sweet, open, you know, now just grown up and marvelously talented guy who, you know, hasn't forgotten where he's come from or where he's gone. And it was, you know, that was very. And the other cool thing I always did it with is one of the few things I've done with my, one of my best friends in the world, who I was in the original cast of Grease with, and who still we have dinner, you know, all the time. We're still, still best friends, um, is David Tamer. Oh, wow. So we had, we had a blast because we finally got to be, you know, when we were in Greece on Broadway, he, he and Danny Jacobson, who ended up going on to create Mad About You and Roseanne and, oh, yeah. you know, be a big TV writer. Right. What we would do in our warm-ups before the show, <laughs> it's like clockwork, go, you know, our careers have peaked and we will never work again. <laughs> This is as good as it's ever going to be. You know, we were just firmly convinced that we had peaked. <laughs> that we were so lucky to be working on Broadway and having making almost $400 a week and being so fabulously rich and, you know, young and that it couldn't possibly last. And this was as good as it was ever going to get. <laughs> and so, which is pretty much the way we still feel. <laughs> you know, and in a way, it's what's kept us going without any, you know, expectation of anything. And there, I remember there was an actor in there that, you know, it was kind of arresting. There was a moment where somebody to me said, referring to the idol maker, says, you had your chance and you blew it. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, my God, how old are you, six? <laughs> do, you, do you have any idea how difficult it is? <laughs> I'm really proud of the work I've done. Yeah, the idol maker didn't exactly make $6 billion, but I am still very proud of it. So what if it didn't make money? It's still there, and I'm proud of it. But I was thinking, God, people really believe that kind of shit. And, um, and needless to say, I still don't think I've blown it. And that was how many years ago? <laughs> yeah, what, 35 years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I haven't been treading water the whole time since. <laughs> Besides, the idol maker gave us baby at least. That's right, <laughs> baby. <laughs> Classic. Uh, let's see here. Um, next is uh, actually I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Melena, Melena. Oh my God, Melena. Well, Melena was interesting only because I got the, it was a it was a movie in Europe about Milena Yazenska, who is Kafka's sort of muse and, and lover. Okay. And I played um, one of Milena's maybe first husbands, or and it was uh, Philip Anglum and Valerie Kaprisky and a bunch of, and, uh, and uh, Yves Jacques, and, uh, and we shot in Paris and uh, Czechoslovakia. And, oh, well, this is, oh, this is interesting, though, actually. What I remember about that was, first of all, was the travel and just our director was Vera, uh, uh, Vera Belmont, Belmont, right, who was a producer in the 60s for, I believe, for a lot of the new wave directors. But what was amazing about it was she invited some of the people she knew from that era 
<clears throat> journalists, French journalists, one in particular, to join the cast. Because they were artists and they were also sort of revolutionaries in a way. In that they, one of them helped the Czech students escape the, the, uh, the Russian incursion in the 60s. Oh, wow. And uh, get back to Paris. But as a result, he was, his name was, must have still been in the lists of enemies of the state. Because we would go out at night as a group... And I remember we would go out with some local artists, some Czech artists, and they would be going, making all this noise and racket and holler, and meanwhile, the whole city is covered in scaffolding, and Bashlav Havel is in prison. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I said to one of them, I said, man, what, if the, with the secret police here, aren't you afraid of, like, just getting disappeared, <laughs> making all this racket, and, you know, all she says, Peter. The only way to survive in a totalitarian regime like this is to not let your spirit die. You have to keep that fire burning. And then on the way back, we were photographed by the secret police. In particular, that student, that French student leader who is now older, who was in our company that Vera had brought in. And one of them, somebody else was taken to jail, Jeez. which whom we ultimately were able to get out. <laughs> but it was amazing to see you know, just in terms of history, that what I, I felt was there was no, I couldn't discern any kind of sense of hope or belief in the in the eyes of the people that were there in Czechoslovakia that things would ever change. Yeah. You know, that they had been under this corrupt system for so long that they just sort of had a very different view of humanity than I did. At least that's what I felt. And yet, I think it was a year later, Prague was free, and just not too long after that, the scaffolding came back, the buildings were finished being renovated and buffed up, and now it's like a huge destination capital. So it was very encouraging to see, you know, to sort of witness a, 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 a place in transition. Yeah. Like Stacy Keach was in that also, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Love Stacy Keach. Uh, and I remember, in fact, oh, yeah. I remember once. Valerie and I had a love scene. It was outdoors or something, as I recall. We weren't wearing much, or if anything, and it was cold as hell. And it was really just an improbable place for a love scene, a completely improbable temperature. And just all the way along, it was like, all right, you want us to do one? Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, tried, we finished the first take. <laughs> I remember hearing Vera go, Coupe! That was shit. It was shit. Shit. <laughs> and we're standing there like clutching a t-shirt and a pair of drawers like in front of ourselves in this shiveringly cold air and thinking, wow, so classy. <laughs> this is what I do. This is what I do for a living. Too bad my folks can't see this. <laughs> um, and, and, and the other cool, the other amazing thing was that Yves Jacques, who was in this, also worked for, uh, oh my God, the great Canadian director who directed e, uh, uh, Jesus of Montreal. Oh, he was just, he was the Canadian director for, anyway. <laughs> he, oh, here, oh yeah, oh, hey, hey, here's, here's the Malena story. Okay. Here's the Malena okay. story. <laughs> um, 
Oh, so I just got the, the chronology backwards. Okay. He, Eve had just done Jesus of Montreal okay. for, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the direction. Anyway, it's easy to find out. And I had just done Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Okay, yeah. And so Eve was talking, was sure that Jesus of Montreal was going to sweep the sweet cans. Okay. I wasn't opening my mouth much about sex lies and videotape because by that point I'd been burned enough times to not really associate awards or that kind of recognition with the success of something. <laughs> it would have been right. too painful <laughs> because it's like it's like nope, you didn't get it. Nope, this didn't happen. Nope, nope. So I didn't really think about it. I didn't really want to deal with it. But I was shooting a scene in Milena and we were in Paris, and I was. The scene in front of the dressing, I was putting on my white, my, my tails and, you know, formal attire for the evening to go out <clears throat> and some scene or other to do with. And as we're doing this, and so doing this, I'm putting it on all of a sudden in the middle of the take, it's interrupted by a bunch of people in the next room going, Sex life! Sex life! <laughs> and and they could, it's coupey! And they go in there, and Sex, Lies, and Videotape had just won the Palm Door. Oh, wow. At, at Cannes. And I, wrote, and I walked in, they told me what was going on, I ran into the room, and there was Steven Soderbergh <laughs> receiving the Palm Door in a tuxedo not too dissimilar from the one that I was wearing at that moment. <laughs> and we announced it, and receiving the, the Palm Door for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And... Um, and it was just one of those shocking events when when everything just worked out for a second, which was particularly ironic because when we first showed Sex, Lies, and Videotape to my agent at the time, Sam Cohn and Paul Martino at ICM, their response, Sam's response was, it's adolescent and immature. <laughs> and my response was, yeah, but it's the best thing you got of me. Is there anything, maybe it won't hurt us, do you think? <laughs> And they didn't respond, and and we ended up winning the Palm Door. Of course, he was sure that his client Merrill was going to win it with, a, you know, a Dingo Still Ma Baby movie, <laughs> and uh, and and, uh, and so it was nice that even the the high and the mighty and the all knowing don't know everything. Or as Robert Altman used to remind us of that I think was probably taken from the William Goldman book just remember there's nobody at the top and nobody knows anything <laughs> this was our you know what we we reminded ourselves of during the shooting of the player <laughs> alright so let's see next we've got uh, Fallen Angels ah there must be some mistake do you have an appointment I'm booked today. If it's an emergency, I'd be happy to refer you to Dr. Fishbein. He's very good. If not, please see Dolores. Make an appointment. I, um, saw Dolores. Is there a problem? Seems you had quite a time for yourself last night. Quite a time, they tell me. Mr. Sullivan, we will finish this up tomorrow. Reschedule with Dolores on your way out. I regret, regret quite deeply any inconvenience this may cause. I don't understand. I have a hole in my tooth. Nothing that won't keep. No harm at all. Oh, sorry. 
That was quite unnecessary. You might have waited. Doesn't work like that. Let's go. Where? Downtown. <sighs> what for? I had a beer at Ed Riley's place. A beer. Two beers. And on your way home, you picked up somebody. brought her back here. Where's the crime? They don't put you in jail for it. The hell they don't. The girl was 15 years old. What? She said she was... It's not what she said. That counts, doctor. Paul on Angels, that was a fun little series. Again, I'd worked with Soderbergh on a, a little one with Joe Montagna. Played a dentist, and I did one uh, for Tom Cruise and his directorial debut, which was lovely and the alluring. Isabella Rossellini. Oh, yes. And um, and uh, it was it was fun to work with Tom. It was. Uh, I don't think he's directed since. So I. <laughs> I was actually I was going to ask you how he was as a director. Well, my God, was, uh, you know he's uh, he was he was he was very well prepared. He was very well prepared. He he's really done his homework and. Uh, um, and uh, and I, but and he hasn't directed since, so hopefully I, I, I had nothing to do with it. I hope <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> yeah, that's not, I don't really have much on Fallen Angels, to be honest with you. Well, that's fine. Just just that it was a nice idea that they had of a series to do, and and it was an excuse for all of us to do kind of fun, cool things. Yeah, the, it was a tough sell in anthologies for a while. I think it's getting a little bit better with streaming, with like Twilight Zone and. Black Mirror and things like right. that. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's see. Next would be then uh, Watch It, which I think may is right up there with one of the first films I ever saw on video that I was like, did this even get a theatrical release? And if not, why not? Allow me, if you will, to familiarize you with the Rick Miller theory of women. If you have to go to the bathroom or anything, you should go now. If you there's nobody out there. There's like a zillion guys out there. And I'm not even counting the Chinese guys. <laughs> That's not funny. That's not funny. Men and women. You can do whatever you want to me. I think we should leave. Dum, 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 dum. Connecting. You're amazing. You really should have told me you were seeing another woman. <laughs> and denying. Why are all men such jerks? It's a closely guarded secret. I could get in a lot of trouble if I told you. Taking chances. Mind, I haven't had sex in over eight years. Why? Is it, is it doing wrong? Did I hurt you? And telling lies. Honey, honey. I've been working, I've been reading. You've been doing a lot of things that end in ING. <laughs> Running scared. I just don't like the idea of leading her on. I don't think it's fair. You know what's happening? You're having a real feeling. And growing up. The height of passion. I found occasion to utter the three most wonderful words one lover can say to another. I love you. Videotape camera. <laughs> it's love in the 90s. It's trying to be deviant. And trying to survive it. Single women are attracted to guys who don't want You have to let men fix themselves. You cannot do it for them. Is this something that you've heard on Oprah? Say something. I don't know that I don't love you. This is ridiculous. I'm apologizing. You rejected me. You ought to give some thought to this whole thing. What's going to happen when something really wrong happens? I'm a woman, okay? If you ever become a man, why don't you look me up? You think I have this problem with women? Well, let me tell you something. I do want to help repeat business. But 
you tell me how a very non-committal assistant would be willing to just live with him indefinitely? I have met the most beautiful girl I have ever seen. Look at her. This girl is crazy about me, and I don't know what she likes to have out of it. Watch it. No matter how big a jerk I am, they still want me. You may see someone you know. I am human cocaine. From the producer of A Few Good Men and The Player. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened with that. People still loved that movie. It was, uh, you know, a great cast. John Tenney, who I'm still pals with. He lives a block away from me in L.A. And uh, times Tom Sizemore, when he was <clears throat> hadn't been quite, quite, you know, gone out there where the buses don't run. Sure. And, uh, and Johnny C. And, and Tom Flynn, who I think must be doing a lot of rewriting. He said, well, I, God, I wrote such a funny script. And... You know, it's just—it's really—it's really miraculous when things work out. Either that, or they have to be part of a corporate, you know, juggernaut, where you know all the uh, the uh, resources will be put behind it. I remember, and so many things can happen. You know, the thing that happened with Dream Child is that when the movie was ready to be released, the executive in charge of it was fired. So the guy that replaces the woman that was very, I think it was Verity Lambert, who was, who was in charge of it, the first thing those people do is make sure that the person that was fired, none of their product succeeds. So, because it buys them at least a year in the job. Yeah. Because if all of a sudden all this stuff comes out and it's looking great, it's not going to reflect well on the new guy if his stuff doesn't. So, I mean, I think, I don't know if anybody writes this down, but it's what's consistently happened in my life that I've seen that happen. And so, Dream Child, in spite of like wonderful reviews, like in Time Magazine and all these amazing reviews, it was just dumped. Yeah. And it was rescued by Joe Papp in New York, who saw the film and just ran it for months. And a couple of theaters or owners around the place ran it for months. And so, and it happened with, uh, you know, to Jillian on her 37th birthday. Oh, yeah. Right, right when it was about to be released, the head of marketing, Sid Gannis, was replaced by somebody else, and they blew out the release. They had, they were obliged to release in certain number of theaters, so they did the next day to make sure that it didn't have the proper support and died. And then all of a sudden, it was Anaconda that you know got the. Uh, so it's, it, there's so many things that can that can you know that it's miraculous when everything comes together and good movies made and people get to see it well no, just with watching I, I always it was inspiring to want to go pull pranks on friends <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a lot, listen there's still people out there that it's their holy grail <laughs> oh and uh, just uh, since you've mentioned uh, to Julian, I have to at least just ask you about the experience of the uh, the sandcastle. <laughs> yeah, that was like my least favorite thing. Um, but <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> the best of it when my kids were very little then. The best of it was they got to see their dad dead buried. That was that was <laughs> that was a high point for them. <laughs> um, so so I, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it through the smiles on my own kids' faces. <laughs> But yes, that was uh, <laughs> that was a great experience all the way along. I remember I remember we were shooting um, in Nantucket, and I was at Michelle's g 
graveside mourning her passing yes. and we were shooting and this archetypal Yankee woman comes barreling into the parking lot in in the camera's view in an old woody station station wagon screeches to a halt gets out and she said i want you and all your carny folk out of here <laughs> i said ma'am we may be carnies but we've got great teeth <laughs> and she looked at me like i was insane and spit out um and i thought oh my god you gotta love new england <laughs> Anyone who can use the word carny. Uh, really? It's a Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my uh, daughter uh, would have these various amusement parks that would show up here and there for like, you know, a weekend or whatever, then leave. And uh, she's like, I, I don't think I want to go to one of those. You, you don't know anything about those random carnies. <laughs> like, <laughs> like eight at the time. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babe. Exactly. Uh, let's see. Uh, how about a brave new world? In a future world, the government controls your birth, your mind, your body. But they can't control your heart. We all have the right to happiness. You should have the proper conditioning as all of us have. NBC is proud to present the classic novel as a world premiere motion picture. Can't afford this disorder. Two people have dared to love and change the brave new world. Carrying your baby. My baby. Peter Gallagher, Leonard Nimoy. Brave New World. One week from Sunday on NBC. Brave New World. Well, it was the... You know, it was a couple of cool things about that. I, you know, first of all, the, the material is classic and sure seems seems ever closer <laughs> to where we're going and and aldous huxley's widow at the time was really really fascinating and i remember she had a she had a program to deter uh, unwanted pregnancies particularly for younger people high school students and so on mm-hmm. and one of the and the program that she supported and and uh, made happen was to put at-risk couples, you know, seriously dating couples in high school, at risk of becoming, you know, unwed parents and and so on, um, to take them and have them spend two hours with an infant or a two-year-old, just the three of them, you know, observe. And she said, you wouldn't believe how effective it was. All of a sudden, all their illusions about parenthood and children were shattered and they just emerged shaken and exhausted. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's a very that's a genius thing. It is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I was also really intrigued with Aldous Huxley's Art of Seeing book about how he dealt with his. his and the other thing about that, it was directed by um, Larry Lippman, uh, Leslie Lippman, and and uh, and Larry Williams. Oh, yeah who were really two really talented husband and wife filmmakers who had just made, I had just made a couple of years before, I don't know if we talked about this movie last time. Did we talk about The Path to Paradise? Um, I don't think so. Well, Path to Paradise was about the 1997 World Trade Center bombings. Oh, okay. And it was all based on wiretaps and transcripts, written, in fact, by one of the an alias. Uh, it was an alias was used by uh, by uh, 
a writer I'd, I'd subsequently got to know on another show okay. because he was worried about reprisals. But it was all wiretaps and transcripts about the worst first World Trade Center bombing and the last line in our movie as we're flying the suspect by the World Trade Towers, which were still there then. The last line was, as we fly him by, is, next time we'll bring them both down. Uh. And um, I never forgot that. And I... I uh, and I realized just how it was just a stroke of luck that those guys were found. It was an NYPD or Transportation Authority officer who defied his superior and ran a VIN number on an axle. And that's how they cracked the case. But I was absolutely convinced that it was going to happen again because it was just too easy for it to. And so we had a, I had a plan with my family that, you know, if it were to happen, what we'd do and where we'd go and how we'd get there. And sure enough, it was the first day of rehearsal for Broadway play I was doing with Patti LuPone called Noises Off, also with Tom McCarthy, who ended up directing the station, writing and directing the station agent, and and also uh, Robin Weigert, who's in Deadwood. Oh yeah. And uh, and Tim, I mean, um, eight, uh, what's his name from uh, the practice? And uh, one of those medical shows. Uh, oh my God! I just the young kid. He, oh, I can't. Anyway, he's in. Oh, so it was a really cool thing. But anyway. Yeah. That first day was, was, the, was the World Trade Center bombing. And of course, the funny thing was, the second plane hit, it wasn't funny, the, time, no, it was the second like plane hit the, hit the tower. And I was still going to go to rehearsal because I'd never missed a rehearsal. And I couldn't physically not go to rehearsal, it seemed like. And my wife said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You've been telling me this was going to happen for the last, I don't know how many years it was, five years, four years. Yeah. And now it's happening and you're going to go to work? So I've never missed a rehearsal. I said, Peter, just listen to yourself. Okay, okay, I think you're right. So my left, my driver downstairs, whose wife worked on Wall Street, said, man, go, you take care of your family. I'm going to take care of mine. Check in tomorrow. <laughs> um, and I just, and uh, we were the last car on the West Side Highway. Uh, was, there was no other cars on the West Side. We went so fast and picked our kids up in school in the Bronx and went up and I kept, went back to work the next day. But... Well, what show were we talking about that, I, that I'm bringing this? There was another show. Oh, oh Larry Williams and and uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and and Leslie Libin. Yes, who also which is how, how I first knew them. And then they asked me to do this Aldous Huxley piece, which I got to work with Leonard Nimoy. So how bad is that? That was great. Not at all. I was actually going to ask. Um, I couldn't remember if you actually had scenes with him or not. I don't think I did, but we, he was just so cool and so supportive, and you know, it's. I gotta tell you, say I've been so lucky to work with all the classy, great, great actors like you know, Cagney and O'Toole and and Leonard Nimoy and all these people because they are they're all people who get it. Yeah. You know, they're all people who, at the end of the day, realize are really lucky. It's like, well, we're going to talk about last debate too, but Jimmy Garner was the same. And it really informed me, you know, when you see people scratching and clawing for, you know, awards or attention or, you know, stuff, <laughs> and you just think, just take an acting class, yeah. just go to work, <laughs> you know, but it's a different, it's a, it's a different age, but I feel very lucky that I've been sort of educated by my experiences with those great people like Coral and you know I remember once I walked into <laughs> I, I I walked into Coral's Coral had me in her 
dressing room to say something. She would go to dinner all the time. She was, you know, and she was probably in her seventies. And the hard thing was, she had had to be made look like she was much older. I remember I walked in once, and she just took her shirt off right in front of me, and I knew she had breast cancer, so oh, yeah. and she'd just been recovered from it, and so on and so forth. And she took her shirt off completely topless, standing in front of me. She's in her seventies, and I think because I'm a ridiculous. Irish Catholic boy, I thought, oh my God, this is my fault. What have I done? I can't believe I willed her shirt to be removed. And then, or I might, must have done something wrong here. And I remember, and just was being completely like a third grader. I was like, oh my God. And she looked awesome. She looked awesome. And and I and she looked at him and said, oh, I just remembered. I have a meeting with Rick, who's our producer. I, I ran out of the room. <laughs> and, she, and and then the next and then I like it was haunting me for like a whole day. Thought, oh man, I think this. I think I could have handled that so much better, but I have no idea how because I'd never been in a situation like that in my life. And I thought this is coral for God's sake. You did nothing wrong. You did not will her shirt to be removed. She took it off in front of you, obviously for a reason. That I said, "That's a coral." I just got to tell you, man. You look amazing with your shirt off. Said, oh, thank you, darling. I thought you'd never say. I, oh, what is it? Oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> I think that's all. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was like, it was just as simple as that. God, I love people. I love people. <laughs> and so it was. Oh, and you just. Uh, the uh, hmm? the actor from uh, Noises Off was it TK Knight. T yes, yeah, yes, okay. yes, yes. Excellent. Yeah, he was in the not the pra uh, pra some kind of medical show. Yeah, it was Grey's Anatomy. Populous. Yeah, Grey's Anatomy, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. So next up, and we are in the home stretch. Uh, Johnny Skidmarks. You think you're pretty hard, don't you, Skidmarks? I think you've seen it all. I don't really think about it. You know, Johnny, you got a coldness in you, don't you? I just take the pictures. Walter Lippenscott hired me to take pictures of guys in bed with a hooker named Lorraine. I just took the pictures. That's all. Do you see him, Johnny? I hate it when they cry. Everybody in the crew has been turning up dead. Cigarette burns. Psycho. Someone looking for information. They tortured him. And we're next, man. We're next. There's a woman I met around the time everything started happening. And then I, God, I can't be sure, but I I think her father may be one of the pigeons. Who is this? Me and my folks. Why? She's unstable. I left you something. Do what you want with it. Ooh. Anyone that gets... Between me and the bottle is my enemy. Remember that horrible three-way we covered the other night? Turns out it wasn't an accident. Somebody cut the brake lines. Whoa! I don't sit around moping about who my friends are. I just get even, okay? Car crashes, mob hits, satanic sacrifices. It's a crazy world, ain't it? There's a woman in my apartment, and I found Walter's head in my freezer. Of course you 
course, most of the things I did, I don't remember. The only one who could have pulled something like this off would be... title in the history of cinema a little bit um all, all, all i could think of was like really all i could think of, all i could think of was the one sheet well, i know what in my mind what the one sheet is and it ain't pretty and um, what luck for you to be the title character i know you know that's just it's just you know had i had any brains i probably would have passed on it but it was the guys they were the protégés of the cohen brothers and uh, I had just done a call, I just done a movie for the Coen Brothers, uh, uh, just a little thing in Hudsucker Epoxy. Oh yeah. Which, parenthetically, by the way, I sing a little song in that, um, and I sing do this Dean Martin impression of a of one of his hit songs, Memories Are Made of This. Oh yeah. And I sang it live in just you know a few takes. To the I had an earwick in my ear with the backing track, and I sang it live. And it's intercut with all these society doyens going ooh, 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 to my <laughs> romantic Vic Canetta, you know, song. Sure. When in fact, and I have the picture, I just also the pictures in the same lot that I found with Robards. When in fact, I was actually singing it to Paul Newman. <laughs> Paul had heard, I was pals with Paul, and he'd heard I was singing, doing my scene. And so he ran in, and he he stood right there by camera right the whole time <laughs> for my eye line. So I was saying to Paul Newman, take one fresh and tender kiss, take one stolen night of bliss. And here he is with this big ass smile on his face. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm singing that whole love song to Paul Newman. And, well, I mean, those and, blue eyes, come on. I mean, how can you, and he, you know, I mean, I, I've known he and Joanne and he, and they were really kind to me. Paul brought me into the Academy. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Of motion pictures, arts and sciences, and Joanne was, you know, they they were fans of, not fans, but I mean, they came, in fact, they used to see me a lot at the Long War Theater, and certainly when another country, and and their daughter was a fan of the Idolmakers, so <laughs> I think that's how they... But anyway, so what was this one we were talking oh, we're about? Now was Johnny Skidmark. You're not getting oh, off right, that Johnny easy. Skidmark. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, that was an interesting thing, you know, because I thought, well, you know, Franny was in it. Yeah. And uh, uh, Lithgow. Yeah. John and and what a, a great cast, and it was a first-time director, uh, a writer, and it was just one of those movies that. I don't know. I don't know that I, I, I guess, you know, you, you can't hit a home run all the time. But it, at least it nearly killed me. Because <laughs> I remember all the times I've been hurt in movies, it's always stuff that I knew was going to happen and had said something about, but went, all right. <laughs> and this was one where I was photographing a crime scene, a murder scene in a hotel, and I had, and the director wanted me to sh fire that camera at a pretty rapid pace, yeah. too fast for the flash to recharge from the camera unit itself. It needed an independent power source. Mm -hmm. So they said, "Well, why don't we just rig a zip line like a, you know, a 
will ring a singer up through his pant leg, and up through a thing, and down his sleeve right into the camera. And that way we'll have power. He can just fire that thing like an AK-47. <laughs> and I said, great, okay. We're getting the, setting the rig up and so on and so forth. And I noticed it's like taking gauge wire. The higher the number is, the smaller the wire. As I'm recalling it's like 22-gauge lamp wire. It's actually a very thin wire. And so we're running it, and it's going underneath my watch strap and then hidden by my hand into the camera. I said, guys, this seems like a pretty light gauge wire for all this electrical charge. Are you sure this is wire is going to be able to handle the load? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 we tested it. Yeah, we <laughs> tested it. You've got no problem there. We tested it. And it's about 2 in the morning. And we've been shooting for at least 12 hours already. And we were in somewhere deep in the valley in California. So, all right. So we do a take. It's getting a little hot in there, but it's all right. We do another take. And then all of a sudden, I think, God, that was wrong with my hand. I mean, what the fuck is that smell? And all of a sudden, I look down and my wrist is on fire. Oh, shit. And, uh, and uh, oh, my God, oh, my God, cut, 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 cut. So there's like my wrist is on fire and my the, the wire is melted into my skin underneath my wire wristband. Oh shit! And and I have third degree burns underneath the <laughs> the things, as well as I was electrocuted a little bit, um, because once the insulation wore off, then the charge came until they cut the power. So they had by protocol they had to take me to the hospital and get an EKG to make sure I wasn't going to have a heart attack from the electrical stimulation yeah. and then be treated with the drugs and bandages for the burns. And then I went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Finished the scene. And then, uh, in fact, oh no, that was another movie. I almost died. No, it wasn't that one. But um, uh, I never really believed they were going to keep the title. You know, I always thought that was like somebody's idea in the, you know, they, oh yeah, we're going to call it, you know, Bobby Shitface. And so, yeah, but chances are you'll, chances are you'll, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'm never going to call it that when I come back to the studio and everything gets it through, they're going to make it. Nope. I, in a way, it was lucky it didn't really go very far because I'd probably, people probably still be calling me Johnny Skidmarks. And thank God for that. Well, the other thing I was going to bring up about that that I found interesting was the fact that one of your co-stars was Scatman John. Oh, I'm Scatman John. Would you like to sing a song, man? Oh, my God. He was uh, Uncle Jeff mean, or Mo or whatever. Now, who is Scatman John? He's I don't even know who that was. Is that a singer? I'm a Scatman. He's a singer, and you would know the song if you heard it because it was pretty much ubiquitous on the radio in, like, 94, maybe? I'm a Scatman. <laughs> It was the scat in the song. It was an actual a huge hit. Oh my god! Off the same thing. As soon as you hear it, you'll be like, oh, I know this song. But it, it may have oh been a movie. Oh my god! That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, 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 I had no idea. I'm not even sure why he's in it, given that it's, it was a, a it's, it's amazing. originally. It's amazing. 
what I learned from you about the things I've done. Well, as you know, I do my research. <laughs> you do. Let's see. Uh, next to last, uh, and you mentioned this a second ago, uh, the last debate, which anybody who's got a James Garner story, I, I want to hear it. Well, that was terrific. You know, um, that was great because uh, it was a John Moss project. Audra McDonald was in it as well, and I think who else was Donna Murphy in it too? I can't remember. But um, it was James it was James uh, James Garner? Yeah. Who was just to, was to me like the he's just you know he's like one of the he's the Dean Martin cool. <laughs> A guy, sense of humor, looked up to. Of course, you have no idea who these people are until you meet them, because they could be, you know, not what they appear. But we are first day of rehearsal in the read-through. We're all there, and James Garner says, Who would have believed it? Here I am, 72 years old, a kid from Norman, Oklahoma, about to start another movie. Isn't that grand? And I thought, oh my God, I love this guy. I feel the same way. So then it came time for our first scene together, which was out at a remote location out at a lake where he was living and I was hawking him because I was a newspaper reporter. So as is my preference, I like to get to the set early. It's a very dorky thing to do because, you know, people have, from abused, I mean, people who, some of the people think, you know, you only show your real power if you're the last one there. What's <laughs> that? <laughs> I don't want the stress of trying to get there on time, and I'd like a few more minutes to just wander around and soak it in. Sure. So I get to this remote location early, and I'm walking there, and who's walking in from the other side? But Gardner. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, what are you doing here? I said, well, what are you doing here? I'm coming to work. I said, well, so have I. <laughs> and so we had like, we had a thing about who could get to the set earlier. <laughs> you know? And, and we had dinner together all the time. And, and uh, I think we smoked some weed once. <laughs> and, and I just loved him. Uh, and he was just, he was kind of everything I hoped to be. You know, as a person and as and as an artist and 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 as a man, really. You know, I mean, he had still he still had shrapnel in him from Korea, and yeah. uh, you know, he he was a guy at the AT and T back in the day when you know the big golf pro am. Yeah. Some guy was being a real jerk, and he just walked over and knocked him out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, he, he I mean, but he was not a bully. He was yeah. just a. He was just a, he was just a great, 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 great guy. And he's just, again, one of those, you know, and I saw him, I saw him a few times over the years after that. And there was just always, regardless of how, where his health was at or how he was doing, it was just, God, it just made my heart, you know, just expand when I would see him. He just made everything better. And I will say, that everybody who's ever told me a story about him, it follows in that same general format. So that, that's just miraculous that he really is that guy. Yeah, he really is. He's really the real deal. Really, really is. All right, so I think we are finally on the, the last item of the list of torture here. Uh, the uh, exonerated. Oh, right. Um, well, that shouldn't take too long, but it was... <laughs> 
um, it was just a powerful experience to read the words of someone who had been on death row. I, I, uh, I just blanked on my character's name for a minute, Carrie, uh, whom I had met. And to, to, again, it's one of those, it's one of those, uh, something Bob Balaban put together and, and, um, also was related indirectly, and Tony Goldwyn did it as well, to a movie Tony directed that I was in uh, with Hilary Swank, Cole, and uh, Sam Rockwell. The, uh, called... Uh, oh, wait, I, I do know that one. It's, uh, it's Conviction. Conviction, yeah. Conviction, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, which was also inspired. I played, actually, uh, Barry... Uh, it was the great, the great defense attorney, public defender, who was also in, in O.J.'s trial which didn't help his rep. Uh, oh, come on. He's a big, great, big New York public defender and uh, defense defense wow. attorney. Um, Barry, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I played played him in, in conviction. And he was, it's the exonerated, it's the Innocence Project. Oh, yeah, okay. That, uh, was in, that the exonerated was inspired by and by their efforts to find people on death row that have been unjustly convicted and free them. And... Uh, and so we had a wonderful rotating cast of people, actors. There's Jeff Goldblum. There was I can't remember all the wonderful actors, but it was very powerful just to be telling those stories in someone's actual words to an audience. And the cumulative power of the evening was really powerful. And as I said, it's, it's again one of those instances where art intersects. Art has a place in the, in, in the world that you're living in, and, or the story you're telling has a place in the world that you're living in, and it just makes you feel like what you're doing has value yeah. in the same way you know i remember after 9 11 you know as we were doing noises off about a, a few days after it happened i was asked to go down to ground zero with remember matthew modine and a couple of other people to see the guys that had missed the yankees and missed the president that were working on the night shift oh yeah and you know, we went down in the Humvees and the 50 caliber machine guns and the area was lit with movie lights and the smell was there and they were working with the, the big bucket brigade, you know, hundreds of fire, hundreds of firefighters actively passing the buckets along, hundreds of firefighters resting on, you know, in between shifts, resting on fallen girders. And and I would see ads in the, during the day of, on sides of buses about the latest police procedural and thinking about the cops, firefighters I knew, like Patty Brown, who died. And, and I think, oh, my God, what a lame thing to do, like be, pretend to be a fake cop for a living or something like that. What a stupid thing. And I'm thinking, like, as I'm walking ground zero, thinking, God, what the hell have I decided to do with my living? It's with my life. It's like, what a, what a useless thing to be meat puppet and I should you know try to help these guys or whatever and all the some other guys sitting on the grid goes hey hey it's the king hey fuck me your majesty what the hell are you doing here holy shit look guys it's the king so they're all coming up fuck me your majesty and all of a sudden we're like standing around and like laughing our asses off to be honest with you I said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, well, you know, I had the night off. I thought I'd come see you, knuckleheads. And, and, um, <laughs> and I'm looking at a piece of metal in front of me that I realize is a brand new town car. And just about where I'm standing 
was the uh, ladder four truck from the house around the corner from our theater that lost 15 guys. Oh, wow. And it was buried 20 feet underneath where I was standing. Um, and all of a sudden I realized, this, oh, this is what I do. And, uh, and it was just, a, you know, it's just some things you don't, you know, you don't, it, it just, and then, you know, and then, and then to go back and do the show when we finally started previews it was only a month later yeah. and there was anthrax in the air people were saying broadway might be over you know nobody's gonna uh come see broadway anymore it's too dangerous and people from the first preview on filled the theater wow and uh, my god that show noises off is so funny it was written by uh michael frayne who's a genius but but during this production his nickname became our production was the National Theater, uh, the National Theater um, from London production, with different cast. But that cast dubbed him because of his response to his own play consistently, called him Chuckle Strain, because he just would stand, watch this thing, and, and, and found it endlessly delightful. As did every member of the audience, and they made sounds of laughter. I swear to God, it just sounded like surgery without anesthesia. There was such, such a need for it. And children were mortified at the sound their chick parents were making in the show. And it just made you feel like the luckiest person in the world. Because I remember I could run to our home on 71st Street from where we were on 47th Street. Oh, wow. um, if something else happened. I wouldn't need any vehicles or anything. I could run there. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're giving... You know, people in New York who are coming with just what they need, which is something to do that, that they never thought to do again, which was laugh. So it just made me feel like I was the luckiest person in the world to have the job I had at that time. And, um, you know, and here's the other, okay, I'll bring it full circle. The other crazy thing about that show was, um, it was, uh, when it came time, it, during that run, it was bring your daughter to work day. And my daughter was eight. I think she was about eight then. Um, she's 26 now, so she was about eight then. So I brought my daughter to work, and I had never had anybody in my dressing room when I meditate and put on my makeup and stretch and do the stuff I do. But yeah. I did that time, and I brought my little girl with me, Catherine. And, uh, and you know, I'm friendly with the house staff and the, and the crew and so on. So they had a little nice little spot for her in the orchestra. And I, my role, I was on stage and off stage because I was the director of the show. And so she got to know, she visited a bunch of did my son. And that's the theater she made her Broadway debut in years later in wow. Spring Awakening. And so when she walked in the door there, Catherine, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so all the guys... And I think Mike and the guys downstairs, I got us in trouble. I think they'd really help me. So, yeah, they would. <laughs> yeah, they would. But, and now she's going back to do her second Broadway show in the theater that I did uh, Long Day's Journey in tonight, which is uh, Lannis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Oh, wow, yeah. I knew that was forthcoming. That's great. Yeah, and, uh, and I, it looks like my son is going to be directing his feature, first feature this year. That's fantastic. Yes, um, that's all I got, kid. Well, you know, I, I feel like this could be enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm you know me, I like to talk. Anyway, and, and it works well for me in my profession, so I, I love it. Well, I really well, appreciate you doing this, Peter. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we could uh, reprise the, uh, 
the event, and I wish you just continued success and much good health and happiness. All right, I'll fit. shut up, Will. Go, go reacquaint yourself with your family. I think I still and, remember um, them. <laughs> okay, good. I'm sure right. they do you too. And I'll. I appreciate it. Peter. Okay, Thanks cool. so much. Anytime. Right. Thank you, Will. You too, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, the irregularly released podcast that focuses on stories about projects that you don't think you care anything about until you hear the stories, at which point you're like, I, I actually do care about that. Thanks. You're welcome. And don't forget, Obscurity Docs is now on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com backslash obscuritynox. It's just that simple.